0: Section 33 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4. Edited by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 33 Career of Charlemagne. A.D. 772-1814 to 1814 by francois P. G. Guizot. Part 2. On Holy Saturday, April 1, 774, Charlemagne found, at three miles from Rome, the magistrates and the banner of the city, sent forward by the Pope to meet him. At one mile, all the municipal bodies and the pupils of the schools, carrying palm branches and singing hymns, and at the gate of the city, the cross, which was never taken out, save for exarchs and patricians. At sight of the cross, Charlemagne dismounted, entered Rome on foot, ascended the steps of the ancient Basilica of St. Peter, repeating at each step a sign of respectful piety, and was received at the top by the Pope himself. All around him and in the streets a chant was sung, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. At his entry and during his sojourn at Rome, Charlemagne gave the most striking proofs of Christian faith and respect for the head of the Church. According to the custom of pilgrims, he visited all the basilicas, and in that of Santa Maria Maggiore he performed his solemn devotions. Then, passing to temporal matters, he caused to be brought and read over, in his private conferences with the pope the deed of territorial gift made by his father pepin to stephen the second and with his own lips dictated the confirmation of it adding thereto a new gift of certain territories which he was in course of wresting by conquest from the lombards pope adrian on his side rendered to him with a mixture of affection and dignity all the honours and all the services, which could at one and the same time satisfy and exalt the king and the priest, the protector and the protected. He presented to Charlemagne a book containing a collection of the canons written by the pontiffs from the origin of the church, and he put at the beginning of the book, which was dedicated to Charlemagne, an address in forty-five irregular verses, written with his own hand, which formed an anagram, Pope Adrian to his most excellent son, Charlemagne, king, Domino Excellentissimo, Filio Carlo Magno Regi, Hadrianus Papa. At the same time he encouraged him to push his victory to the utmost and make himself king of the Lombards, advising him, however, not to incorporate his conquest with the Frankish dominions, as it would wound the pride of the conquered people to be thus absorbed by the conquerors, and to take merely the title of King of the Franks and Lombards. Charlemagne appreciated and accepted this wise advice, for he could preserve proper limits in his ambition and in the hour of victory. Three years afterward he even did more than Pope Adrian had advised. In 777, Queen Hildegard, bore him a son, Pepin, whom in 781 Charlemagne had baptized and anointed king of Italy at Rome by the Pope, thus separating not only the two titles, but also the two kingdoms, and restoring to the Lombards a national existence, feeling quite sure that so long as he lived, the unity of his different dominions would not be imperiled having thus regulated at rome his own affairs and those of the church he returned to his camp took pavia received the submission of all the lombard dukes and counts save one only Aregisius, duke of beneventum and entered france again taking with him as prisoner king didier whom he banished to a monastery first at liege and then at corby where the dethroned lombard say the chronicles ended his days in saintly fashion. The prompt success of this war in Italy, undertaken at the appeal of the head of the church, this first sojourn of Charlemagne at Rome, the spectacles he had witnessed and the homage he had received, exercised over him, his plans and his deeds, a powerful influence. This rough Frankish warrior, chief of a people, who were beginning to make a brilliant appearance upon the stage of the world, And issue himself of a new line had a taste for what was grand splendid ancient and consecrated by time and public respect he understood and estimated at its full worth the moral force and importance of such allies he departed from rome in 774 more determined than ever to subdue saxony to the advantage of the church as well as of his own power and to promote in the south and in the north the triumph of the Frankish-Christian dominion. Three years afterward, in 777, he had convoked at Paderborn in Westphalia that general assembly of his different peoples at which Wittekind did not attend and which was destined to bring upon the Saxons a more and more obstinate war. The Saracen ibn al-Arabi, says Eginhard, came to this town to present himself before the king. He had arrived from Spain, together with other Saracens in his train, to surrender to the king of the Franks himself and all the towns which the king of the Saracens had confided to his keeping. For a long time, past the Christians of the West had given the Muslims, Arab or other, the name of Saracens. Ibn al-Arabi was governor of Saragossa and one of the Spanish-Arab chieftains in league against Rahman the last offshoot of the omniad caliphs who with the assistance of the berbers had seized the government of spain amid the troubles of his country and his nation ibn al-arabi summoned to his aid against ab raman the franks and the christians just as but lately maurontius duke of arles had summoned to provence against charles martel the arabs and the mussulmans Charlemagne accepted the summons with alacrity. With the coming of spring in the following year, 778, and with the full assent of his chief warriors, he began his march towards the Pyrenees, crossed the Loire, and halted at Castenul, at the confluence of the Lot and the Garonne, to celebrate there the festival of Easter, and to make preparations for his expedition thence as he had but lately done for his campaign in Italy against the Lombards, he divided his forces into two armies, one composed of Austrasians, Neustrians, Burgundians, and diverse German contingents, and commanded by Charlemagne in person, was to enter Spain by the valley of Rancis Walls, in the western Pyrenees, and make for Pampeluna, the other consisting of Provençals, Septimanians, Lombards, and other populations of the south under the command of duke bernard who had already distinguished himself in italy had orders to penetrate into spain by the eastern pyrenees to receive on the march the submission of girona and barcelona and not to halt till they were before saragossa where the two armies were to form a junction and which ibn al-arabi had promised to give up to the king of the franks according to this plan charlemagne had to traverse the territories of Aquitaine and Vasconia, domains of Duke Lupus II, son of Duke Wafer, so long at the foe of Pepin the Short, a Merovingian by descent, and in all these qualities little disposed to favour Charlemagne. However, the march was accomplished without difficulty. The king of the Franks treated his powerful vassal well, and Duke Lupus swore to him afresh or for the first time says m foriel submission and fidelity but the event soon proved that it was not without umbrage or without all the feelings of a true son of wafer that he saw the franks and the son of pepin so close to him the aggressive campaign was an easy and a brilliant one charles with his army entered spain by the volley of Walls, without encountering any obstacle On his arrival before Pampeluna, the Arab governor surrendered the place to him, and Charlemagne pushed forward vigorously to Saragossa. But there fortune changed. The presence of foreigners and Christians on the soil of Spain caused a suspension of interior quarrels among the Arabs, who rose in mass at all points to succor Saragossa. The besieged defended themselves with obstinacy, There was more scarcity of provisions among the besiegers than inside the place. Sickness broke out among them. They were incessantly harassed from without, and rumors of a fresh rising among the Saxons reached Charlemagne. The Arabs demanded negotiation. To decide the king of the Franks upon an abandonment of the siege, they offered him an immense quantity of gold, say the chroniclers, hostages and promises of homage and fidelity, Appearances had been saved, Charlemagne could say, and even perhaps believe, that he had pushed his conquests as far as the Ebro. He decided on retreat, and all the army was set in motion to recross the Pyrenees. On arriving before Pampeluna, Charlemagne had its walls completely raised to the ground, in order that, as he said, that city might not be able to revolt. The troops entered those same passes of Roncesvalles, Walls, which they had traversed without obstacle a few weeks before, and the advance guard of the main body of the army were already clear of them. The account of what happened shall be given in the words of Eginhard, the only contemporary historian whose account, free from all exaggeration, can be considered authentic. The king, he says brought back his army without experiencing any loss save that at the summit of the pyrenees he suffered somewhat from the perfidy of the vascans basques while the army of the franks embarrassed in a narrow defile was forced by the nature of the ground to advance in one long close line the basques who were in ambush on the crest of the mountain for the sickness of the forest with which these parts are covered is favourable to ambuscade descend and fall suddenly on the baggage train and on the troops of the rear guard whose duty it was to cover all in the front and precipitate them to the bottom of the valley there took place a fight in which the franks were killed to a man the basques after having plundered the baggage train profited by the night which had come on to disperse rapidly they owed all their success in this engagement to the lightness of their equipment and to the nature of the spot where the action took place. The Franks, on the contrary, being heavily armed and in an unfavourable position, struggled against too many disadvantages. Eginhard, master of the household of the king, Anselm, count of the palace, and Roland, prefect of the marches of Brittany, fell in this engagement. There were no means at the time of taking revenge for this check for after their sudden attack the enemy dispersed to such a good purpose that there was no gaining any trace of the direction in which they should be sought for history says no more but in the poetry of the people there is a longer and more faithful memory than in the court of kings the disaster of Francis Walls and the heroism of the warriors who perished there became in france the object of popular sympathy and the favorite topic for the exercise of the popular fancy. The Song of Roland, a real Homeric poem in its great beauty, and yet rude and simple as became its national character, bears witness to the prolonged importance attained in Europe by this incident in the history of Charlemagne. Four centuries later, the comrades of William the Conqueror, marching to battle at Hastings, For the possession of England struck up the Song of Roland to prepare themselves for victory or death, says M. Vittel, in his vivid estimate, and able translation of this poetical monument of the manners and first impulses towards chivalry of the Middle Ages. There is no determining how far history must be made to participate in these reminiscences of national feeling, but assuredly the figures of Roland and Oliver and Archbishop Turpin, and the pious and sophisticated and tender character of their heroism, are not pure fables invented by the fancy of a poet or the credulity of a monk. If the accuracy of historical narrative must not be looked for in them, their moral truth must be recognized in their portrayal of people and an age. The politic genius of Charlemagne comprehended more fully than would be imagined from his panegyrist brief and dry account all the gravity of the affair of Francis Walls. Not only did he take immediate vengeance by hanging Duke Lupus of Aquitaine, whose treason had brought down this mishap, and by reducing his two sons, Adalric and Sancho, to a more feeble and precarious condition. But he resolved to treat Aquitaine as he had but lately treated Italy, that is to say, to make of it, according to the correct definition of M. a special kingdom, an integral portion, indeed, of the Frankish Empire, but with an especial destination, which was that of resisting the invasions of the Andalusian Arabs, and confining them as much as possible to the soil of the peninsula this was in some sort giving back to the country its primary task as an independent duchy and it was the most natural and most certain way of making the aquitanians useful subjects by giving play to their national vanity to their pretensions of forming a separate people and to their hopes of once more becoming sooner or later an independent nation queen hildegard during her husband's sojourn at castanou in 778, had borne him a son, whom he called Louis, and who was afterwards Louis the de Debonair. Charlemagne summoned a second time to Rome, in 781, by the quarrels of Pope Adrian I, with the imperial court of Constantinople, brought with him his two sons, Pepin, aged only four years, and Louis, only three years, and had them anointed by the Pope, the former king of Italy, and the latter king of Aquitaine. On returning from Rome to Austrasia, Charlemagne sent Louis at once to take possession of his kingdom. From the banks of the Moise to Orleans the little prince was carried in his cradle, but once on the lawyer this manner of travelling beseemed him no longer. His conductors would that his entry into his dominions should have a manly and warrior-like appearance. They clad him in arms proportioned to his height and age, they put him and held him on horseback, and it was in such guise that he entered Aquitaine. He came thither accompanied by the officers who were to form his council of guardians, men chosen by Charlemagne with care, among the Frankish Lloyds, distinguished not only for bravery and firmness, but also for adroitness, and such as they should be, to be neither deceived nor scared by the cunning, fickle, and turbulent populations with whom they would have to deal. From this period to the death of Charlemagne, and by his sovereign influence, though all the while under his son's name, the government of Aquitaine was a series of continued efforts to hurl back the Arabs of Spain beyond the Ebro, to extend to that river the dominion of the Franks, to divert to that end the forces, as well as the feelings of the populations of southern Gaul, and thus to pursue, in the south as in the north, against the Arabs as well as against the Saxons and Huns, the grand design of Charlemagne, which was the repression of foreign invasions and the triumph of Christian France over Asiatic paganism and Islamism. Although continually obliged to watch and often still to fight, Charlemagne might well believe that he had nearly gained his end. He had everywhere greatly extended the frontiers of the Frankish dominions and subjugated the populations comprised in his conquests. He had proved that his new frontiers would be vigorously defended against new invasions or dangerous neighbors. He had pursued the Huns and the Slavons, to the confines of the Empire of the East, and the Saracens to the islands of Corsica and Sardinia. The centre of the dominion was no longer in ancient Gaul. He had transferred it to a point not far from the Rhine, in the midst and within reach of the Germanic populations, at the town of Aix-la-Chapelle, which he had founded, and which was his favourite residence. But the principal parts of the gallo frankish kingdom, austrasia neustria and burgundy were effectually welded in one single mass what he had done with southern gaul has just been pointed out how he had both separated it from his own kingdom and still retained it under his control two expeditions into armorica without taking entirely from the britons their independence had taught them real deference and the great warrior roland install the count upon their frontier, warns them of the peril any rising would encounter. The moral influence of Charlemagne was on a par with his material power. He had everywhere protected the missionaries of Christianity, he had twice entered Rome, also in the character of protector, and he could count on the faithful support of the Pope, at least as much as the Pope could count on him. He had received embassies and presents from the sovereigns of the East, Christian and Mussulman, from the emperors of Constantinople and the caliphs of Baghdad. Everywhere, in Europe, in Africa and in Asia, he was feared and respected by kings and people. Such at the close of the 8th century were, so far as he has concerned, the results of his wars, of the superior capacity he had displayed, and of the successes he had won and kept. In 799 he received, at Aix-la-Chapelle, news of serious disturbances which had broken out in Rome, that Pope Leo the Third had been attacked by conspirators, who, after pulling out, it was said, his eyes and his tongue, had shut him up in the monastery of St. Erasmus, whence he had, with great difficulty, escaped, and that he had taken refuge with Vinigisius, Duke of Spoleto, announcing his intention of repairing thence to the frankish king leo was already known to charlemagne at his ascension to the pontificate in 795 he had sent to him as to the patrician and defender of rome the keys of the prison of saint peter and the banner of the city charlemagne showed a disposition to receive him with equal kindness and respect the pope arrived in fact at Paderborn passed some days there according to eginhard and returned to rome on the thirtieth of november seven hundred ninety nine at ease regarding his future but without knowledge on the part of any one of what had been settled between the king of the franks and him charlemagne remained all the winter at aix-la-chapelle spent the first months of the year eight hundred on affairs connected with western france at rouen tours orleans and paris and returning to Mayence in the month of August, then for the first time announced to the General Assembly of Franks his design of making a journey to Italy. He repaired thither, in fact, and arrived on the 23rd of November 800 at the gates of Rome. The Pope received him there as he was dismounting, then the next day, standing on the steps of the Basilica of St. Peter, and amid General Halleluias, He introduced the king into the sanctuary of the blessed Apostle, glorifying and thanking the Lord for this happy event. Some days were spent in examining into the grievances which had been set down to the Pope's account, and in receiving two monks arrived from Jerusalem to present to the king, with the patriarch's blessing, the keys of the Holy Sepulchre and Calvary, as well as the sacred standard. Lastly... On the 25th of December 800, the day of the Nativity of our Lord, says Eginhard, the King came into the Basilica of the blessed St. Peter, Apostle, to attend the celebration of Mass. At the moment when, in his place before the altar, he was bowing down to pray, Pope Leo placed on his head a crown, and all the Roman people shouted, Long life and victory to Charles Augustus, crowned by God! the great and pacific emperor of the Romans. After this proclamation, the pontiff prostrated himself before him and paid him adoration according to the custom established in the days of the old emperors, and thenceforward Charles, giving up the title of patrician, bore that of emperor and Augustus. Eginhard adds, in his Life of Charlemagne, the king at first testified great aversion for this dignity for he declared that notwithstanding the importance of the festival he would not on that day have entered the church if he could have foreseen the intentions of the sovereign pontiff however this event excited the jealousy of the roman emperors of constantinople who showed great vexation at it but charles met their bad graces with nothing but great patience and thanks to his magnanimity which raised him so far above them, he managed, by sending to them frequent embassies, and giving them in his letters the name of brother, to triumph over their conceit. No one probably believed in the ninth century, and no one assuredly will nowadays believe, that Charlemagne was innocent beforehand of what took place on the 25th of December 800 in the Basilica of St. Peter, It is doubtful also, if he were seriously concerned, about the ill temper of the emperors of the East. He had wit enough to understand the value which always remains attached to old traditions, and he might have taken some pains to secure their countenance, to his title of emperor. But all his contemporaries believed, and he also undoubtedly believed, that he had on that day really won and set up again the Roman Empire. What, then, was the government of this empire, of which Charlemagne was proud to assume the old title? How did this German warrior govern that vast Dominion which, thanks to his conquests, extended from the Elbe to the Ebro, from the North Sea to the Mediterranean, which comprised nearly all Germany, Belgium, France, Switzerland, and the north of Italy and of Spain, and which, sooth to say, was still when Charlemagne caused himself to be made emperor, scarce more than the hunting-ground and the battlefield of all the swarms of barbarians who tried to settle on the ruins of the Roman world they had invaded and broken to pieces. The government of Charlemagne in the midst of this chaos is the striking, complicated, and transitory fact which is now to be passed in review. A word of warning must be first of all given touching this word government, with which it is impossible to dispense. For a long time past the word has entailed ideas of national unity, general organization, and regular and efficient power. There has been no lack of revolutions, which have changed dynasties and the principles and forms of the supreme power in the state, but they have always left existing, under different names, the practical machinery whereby the supreme power makes itself felt, and exercises its various functions over the whole country. Open the almanac, whether it be called the imperial, the royal or the national, and you will find there always the working system of the government of France. All the powers and their agents, from the lowest to the highest, are there indicated and classed according to their prerogatives and relations nor have we there a mere empty nomenclature a phantom of theory things go on actually as they are described the book is the reflex of the reality it were easy to construct for the empire of charlemagne a similar list of officers there might be set down in it dukes counts vicars centeniers and sheriffs scabini and they might be distributed in regular gradation Over the whole territory but it would be one huge lie for most frequently in the majority of places these magistracies were utterly powerless and themselves in complete disorder the efforts of charlemagne either to establish them on a firm footing or to make them act with regularity were continual but unavailing in spite of the fixity of his purpose and the energy of his action The disorder around him was measureless and insurmountable. He might check it for a moment at one point, but the evil existed wherever his terrible will did not reach, and wherever it did the evil broke out again as soon as it had been withdrawn. How could it be otherwise? Charlemagne had not to grapple with one single nation or with one single system of institutions. He had to deal with different nations— without cohesion, and foreign one to another. The authority belonged, at one and the same time, to assemblies of free men, to landholders over the dwellers on their domains, and to the king over the lords and their following. These three powers appeared and acted side by side in every locality as well as in the totality of the state. Their relations and their prerogatives were not governed by any generally recognized principle, and none of the three was invested with sufficient might to habitually prevail against the independence or resistance of its rivals. Force alone, varying according to circumstances and always uncertain, decided matters between them. Such was France at the accession of the second line. The coexistence of and the struggle between the three systems of institutions and the three powers just alluded to had as yet had no other result out of this chaos charlemagne calls to issue a monarchy strong through him alone and so long as he was by but powerless and gone like a shadow when the man was lost to the institution whoever is astonished either at this triumph of absolute monarchy through the personal movement of charlemagne or at the speedy fall of the fabric on the disappearance of the moving spirit understands neither what can be done by a great man when without him society sees itself given over to deadly peril, nor how unsubstantial and frail is absolute power when the great man is no longer by, or when society has no longer need for him. It has just been shown how Charlemagne, by his wars, which had for their object and result permanent and well-secured conquests, had stopped the fresh incursions of barbarians, that is, had stopped disorder coming from without. An attempt will now be made to show by what means he set about suppressing disorder from within, and putting his own rule in the place of the anarchy that prevailed in the Roman world, which lay in ruins, and in the barbaric world, which was a prey to blind and ill-regulated force." A distinction must be drawn between the local and central governments. Far from the center of the state, in what have since been called the provinces, the power of the emperor was exercised by the medium of two classes of agents, one local and permanent, the other dispatched from the center and transitory. In the first class we find, first, the dukes, counts, vicars of counts, centeners, sheriffs scabini, officers or magistrates residing on the spot nominated by the emperor himself or by his delegates and charged with the duty of acting in his name for the levying of troops rendering of justice maintenance of order and receipt of imposts second the beneficiaries or vassals of the emperor who held off him sometimes as hereditaments more often for life and more often still without fixed rule or stipulation, lands, domains, throughout the extent of which they exercised, a little bit in their own name and a little bit in the name of the emperor, a certain jurisdiction, and nearly all the rights of sovereignty. There was nothing very fixed or clear in the position of the beneficiaries and in the nature of their power. They were at one and the same time delegates and independent owners and enjoyers of usufruct and the former or the latter character prevailed among them according to circumstances. But altogether they were closely bound to Charlemagne, who, in a great number of cases, charged them with the execution of his orders in the lands they occupied. Above these agents, local and resident, magistrates or beneficiaries, were the Missi Dominici, temporary commissioners, charged to inspect in the emperor's name, the condition of the provinces authorized to penetrate into the interior of the free lands as well as of the domains granted with the title of benefices having the right to reform certain abuses and bound to render an account of all to their master the missi dominici were the principal instrument charlemagne had throughout the vast territory of his empire of order and administration as to the central government, setting aside for a moment the personal action of Charlemagne and of his councillors, the general assemblies, to judge by appearances and to believe nearly all the modern historians, occupied a prominent place in it. They were, in fact, during his reign, numerous and active. From the year 770 to the year 813, we may count thirty-five of these national assemblies, March parades and May parades held at Worms, Valenciennes, Geneva, Paderborn, Aix-la-Chapelle, Sionville, and several other towns, the majority situated round about the two banks of the Rhine. The number and periodical nature of these great political reunions are undoubtedly a noticeable fact. What then went on in their midst? What character and weight must be attached to their intervention in the government of the state? it is important to sift this matter thoroughly. There is extent, touching this subject a very curious document. A contemporary and counsellor of Charlemagne, his cousin, German Adalbert, abbot of Corby, had written a treatise entitled of the Ordering of the Palace, the Ordinae Palati, and designed to give an insight into the government of Charlemagne, with a special reference to the National Assemblies, This treatise was lost, but towards the close of the ninth century, Hingmar, the celebrated archbishop of Rheims, reproduced it almost in its entirety, in the form of a letter of instructions, written at the request of certain grandees of the kingdom, who had asked counsel of him with respect to the government of Carloman, one of the sons of Charles the Stutterer. We read therein. It was the custom at this time to hold two assemblies every year, in both that they might not seem to have been convoked without motive, there was submitted to the examination and deliberation of the grandees, and by virtue of orders from the king, the fragments of law called capitula, which the king himself had drawn up under the inspiration of God or the necessity for which had been made manifest to him in the intervals between the meetings. Two striking facts are to be gathered from these words: The first, that the majority of the members composing these assemblies probably regarded as a burden the necessity for being present at them, since Charlemagne took care to explain their convocation by declaring to them the motive for it, and by always giving them something to do. The second, that the proposal of the capitularies, or in modern phrase, the initiative, proceeded from the Emperor. The initiative is naturally exercised by him who wishes to regulate or reform, and in his time it was especially Charlemagne who conceived this design. There is no doubt, however, but that the members of the Assembly might make on their side such proposals as appeared to them suitable. The constitutional distrusts and artifices of our time were assuredly unknown to Charlemagne who saw in these assemblies a means of government rather than a barrier to his authority. To resume the text of Hingmar. After having received these communications, they deliberated on them two or three days or more, according to the importance of the business. Palace messengers going and coming took their questions and carried back the answers. No stranger came near the place of their meeting, until the result of their deliberations had been able to be submitted to the scrutiny of the great prince, who then, with the wisdom he had received from God, adopted a resolution which all obeyed. The definite resolution, therefore, depended upon Charlemagne alone. The assembly contributed only information and counsel. End of section 33